to you who are fathers. There are moments um, like becoming a father that are very exciting, and there are others in parenting where it feels like you're languishing or you're just waiting. Like, the, you know, the first two years to 18 years of your child's life, for example. Um, and when, when you're dealing with this, the, the whole issue of like feeling like you're waiting, if there's some things that are very exciting, I was listening to a, a book on tape of the Six Day War, and there was this, there was the, the Israeli paratroopers were just about to go out on the most, one of the most daring military missions in modern history, and this, this very famous lady in the Knesset who was a very open atheist, her son came over and got a prayer card, and they were like, what are you doing? He's like, what if your mom saw you? He's like, dude, this is no time to piss off the big guy. Sorry, I'm sorry, make the big guy angry, sorry. I was just, that's a quote, I'm sorry. Um, I still, I'm sorry. Anyway, um, you know, it's sometimes it's situations like that, like war, that are very focusing. Like you're not waiting. Like something's happening. And that can be very focusing on God. It's, when people lose their faith, it's actually often not in foxholes. It's actually, it's in the long wait. It's in the languishing of another day, another where's God? What's going on? What's happening? Is anything happening? And so it's not, if you think of it like fishing line, um, the more you, the more tension you put on it, the easier it is to cut, and you'd think the more tension you're in, like, there'll be this moment where something happens, and boom, it'll cut it, and it'll snap, and that's it. Your faith is over, and you're just going to eat out more, you know? And it's not really like that. It's day in, day out, there's stuff that, that bothers us that's like an abrasion. It does, it's not one smooth cut, but under tension, enough abrasion, enough back and forth, and eventually— it's going to go. doesn't matter what test your line is. Right? That abrasion happens to us when in the midst of feeling like we're waiting, or really when we're languishing, allowing ourselves to have the kind of attitudes that make that abrasion possible. There's certain ways that which people think about God in those times that even though they're languishing— they just, they get really frustrated to God. And they lose patience and they don't recognize why the situation is the way it is and they, they process it totally wrong. And that, what that leads to is it makes your faith a sitting duck. It's Father's Day, so fishing and hunting illustration in the first five minutes. Does that make sense? And when you come to the book of Malachi, if you, you might want to open your Bible to that if, if you've got one. The Pew Bible, it's um, 1487 is the page number. I'm going to read from the first verses of chapter 2, Malachi. This is the last book of the Old Testament. Um, the people of Malachi were in a time where they'd come back from exile, God had done miraculous things. They had these four really great leaders, Joshua, Zerubbabel, Zechariah, and Haggai, that had kind of revved everybody up. They built the wall. They rebuilt the temple. They got the city populated again. They were rolling, and they expected the messianic kingdom, like that God was going to come, and he was going to reign himself, and God's great leader was going to come, and everything was going to be better, and their lives were going to be better, and people were going to live a long time, and, and that just did not happen. And so things, like, pretty steadily declined, and um, in the midst of this 400 years of waiting, um, Sort of at the beginning of that, Malachi shows up, and he's like, guys, 
we're going to have to do this part well, and we aren't. You think we're waiting? We're not waiting. We're languishing. You think God's blessing is like hanging out somewhere? It's not. We're rejecting it. And that's why we're languishing. And the biggest emphasis in the book of Malachi— And the, the reason this is important is because if you say, okay, how do you, how do you hold it together when you feel like you're waiting around? When you feel like you're languishing? What, what helps you have the right attitude so that your faith isn't constantly being abraded until it snaps? What gets you there? Do you have to remember 5,000 things so that every possible attitude I have is in the right place? Or is there one thing that I can trust in? Is there a way to have faith so that that's not infinitely complex? And there is an answer to that. It is one thing. It's not infinitely complex, and here's what it is. It's actually the, the fear and reverence and honor and a sense of sacredness towards God. It is, it's reverence. It's honoring God as absolutely king. It's what the Old Testament calls the fear of the Lord. And it's everywhere in the book of Malachi. You, if you continually understand who God is— if God is always God to you, then most of these other things get in their proper place. They don't take care of themselves. I'm not going to go that far. But they get in their proper place, and it's not infinitely complex. Let me just read a couple verses from chapter 2. He's arguing with the priests that they're not doing their job to honor God, and he says this. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not—here's the phrase— Set your hearts to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty. I will send a curse upon you. And then this next, next phrase is worth an afternoon thinking about. And I will curse your blessings. That's an interesting line, isn't it? And I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. Well, you see throughout the whole book of Malachi, and you see this through the whole Bible— is that faith in God, the kind of faith that saves, faith in, real faith in Jesus that he counts as faith, is faith that first and foremost, before it's anything else, tr- holds that God is God and seeks in the heart to honor him above everything else. Let me just give you a little taste of that as we flip through Malachi, just so you get a sense that this is the theme. So chapter 1, verse 5 He says, the Edomites are going to rebuild, but I'm going to destroy it. Why? He said, and then you will see with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Meaning God's name, his power, he's to be honored in the whole world, not just in Israel. He's not just Israel's God. He's the world's God because he's God. Verse 6, as a son, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect that's due to me? Right? And then he goes on, O priest, you show contempt. Next verse, or next line. How have we shown contempt for you? You have defiled. Next paragraph. By saying the Lord's table is contemptible. Right? And then a few verses down, it says this. You awful, crippled in disease animals. He says, try offering them to your governor. (laughs) See if he's pleased with you. Right? So you bring this animal that's about to die that's going to poison anybody that eats it. And you're like, hey, governor, let's have dinner. And see if he likes that. Now, what's the assumption there? The assumption is if it, it's a lack of respect. He'd be like, Wait, you can't bring this here. 
Verse 11 in chapter 1, My name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations. Verse 12, but you, see respect word, profane. See how that's a negative respect word? You profane, saying that the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. Do you see how that's a respect word again? Food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously. Like a nine-year-old at dinner. Right? The whole Bible says that we are saved by faith. What makes us right with God is trusting in his promise. What is faith? What is faith? And what faith is never less than is a reverence, respect, and honor towards the God who is there. Biblical faith is faith that reverences, respects, and honors. Now you might be like, oh, okay, I don't think that's that interesting. That's because our culture sneers at this and sniffs at it contemptuously. That's the culture that we live in. And yet, you get to the end of the Old Testament, and this is what God is on about. This is the thing he's like, look, you don't do this, and it's like, it's, you, we got nothing. It's a big deal to him. And one of the reasons he says that is because God's people, those who believe in and trust him and follow him, were part of his covenant, that is his agreement of salvation with all people, they're supposed to show what he's like, right? So when you reverence, respect, and honor God, you show that he's worthy of respect, reverence, and honor. You show that he's God, and then you show that to everybody else because that's the purpose of us. We're supposed to be a redemptive people. We show God to people. And so he says, through that, we're supposed to. He says, my name will be great among the nations. My name will be great among the nations. In verse 14, he says, for I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. He wants everybody to know what he's really like. And when respect and reverence and honor towards God wanes at all or is displaced at all, it immediately upends reality. It's impossible for people to understand what God is like if we don't hold God in absolute reverence. It's just a fact. Now, one of the things to recognize about this is that this is a basic reality of being human. And it's something that our culture has, has almost totally forgotten and that really sneers at. I'll explain this in a second. So, so be with me here for a second, not on the slide. Our culture totally sneers at this, and they have no place for this in its mental understanding of the universe. This is the absolute basis for what God says reality is like, okay? And that is this, that God tells things what they are. He makes things, he determines what they are, and he tells us what they are. God determines their identity. A thing is what God calls it, Okay? Because God determines its identity, there are certain ways you can and cannot use it. Therefore, there's every—the identity of something dictates its morality, the way it can and cannot be used. Because it has an identity, it's not just there for you to use however you want it, right? And on the basis of that, it has a sacredness. That is, it has a way we treat it, which is meant to inculcate remembrance, protection, and inculcation. That is, that you and I have to remember the thing is sacred so that we'll treat it right because of what it is. We need to inculcate in other people and in our children 
what it is so that they will understand how it can be used on the basis of its identity. And it also protects it. That is, we tell each other, hey, yeah, you can't treat it that way because this is how it has to be used because this is what it is. And then it feeds in. There's a feeding cycle. The more we recognize that, the deeper we understand its identity, the more it dictates how it can be used, the more sacred it is, and so on. Now, when, when, therefore, when this is lost, because instead of sacredness, there is irreverence, there's a sense of like, I realize that you inculcate this, you protect this, and you want me to remember this, but I don't care. Like, I don't recognize it as that. It isn't that. The, the minute there's a, a sense of this breakdown of how something should be seen and treated, the next thing that naturally happens is that it's seen in its instrumentality, what it can be used for. The thing has a utility, and you can use it however you find it useful. That's what it is. And then what that always produces is if you, if you can use things however you want, are you going to use them for what they're for? If what they're for isn't about you and your ha- immediate happiness? Well, generally not. You're going to use it for something it's not intended for and what it can't be used for in terms of its identity. One of the reasons why this is important is this is why um, Christians get sideways in culture on two major political issues oftentimes, right? Marriage and life. Now, whether or not you believe those are political winners, right? Probably one's a winner and one's a loser, right? Given how culture's going. Either way, that doesn't—it doesn't matter. We don't care what are political winners, Right? The reason we get sideways about those things with our culture is because we believe that God has said very specifically what those two things are. Okay? A human being is a creature created in God's image whose rights and our responsibility to care for them are invaluable. They cannot be violated. Therefore, there's a certain way they can and cannot be used. Children— in the womb should be anticipated by mothers and received joyfully. If for some reason the mother cannot receive them joyfully, there should be thousands of us standing by to receive that child joyfully that she cannot. This is also true of disabled children and difficult circumstances. And it is because of what a human being is. It is a certain thing. Therefore, it can only be treated in certain ways, and that is why we have baby dedications and all kinds of sentimentalities around children and about humanity. There are certain ways we enforce this culturally by revering and holding sacred children, right? And there's lots of ways in which the culture does this as a whole to the extent to which they want to, right? So our culture doesn't have any problem with taking another person's kids away if they feel like they're abusing them, which— in some ways, in certain circumstances, perfectly legitimate, right? Because they, they feel, they, they get that sense here. A born child that is outside of the womb is, shouldn't be treated cruelly, just like you shouldn't treat any animal cruelly, right? Therefore, you can't abuse a child, and therefore, we're going to treat that as though sacred, we're going to have, right? But it's not as holistic as God commands. God's statement isn't, isn't that a conscious person, or a person who's feeling no pain, or a person who wants to keep on living, or a child after they come out of the birth canal, right? He just says, plainly, a human life is in the image of God, and its rights are invaluable, and our responsibilities to it are invaluable, period, full stop. Same thing is true about marriage. Marriage is an invaluable, unbreakable covenant that God creates and that cannot be broken at our will. It has an identity. 
It is a covenant that represents the greater covenant of salvation. It is the only covenant that represents the greater covenant of salvation. We'll see it in Malachi. It's also true, and it's clearly true in Ephesians as well. Therefore, it is a certain thing. It doesn't function instrumentally for our utility. So if we say, well, I'm married, but I'm not in love anymore, and this person's life, person's making my life miserable, so I'm going to get divorced. Okay, well, just, you can get divorced. Just realize you're in the red triangle. That's all. You don't believe it has an identity. Therefore, you use it however you want, because it doesn't have the reverence that the institution itself has, has the identity that God demands for it, right? You don't hold it sacred. Therefore, it's instrumental. You can do what you want with it. You will do what you want with it. You'll break faith with your spouse. The difference here is not a fundamentally political one. The difference here is on the basis of how we understand reality and how human beings interact with reality. And what God says in the book of Malachi is he says, listen, I dictate what morality is. It's like, I'm telling you how you function. I'm telling you what's right or wrong. I'm telling you how respect should be shown from God. That's what the Torah is for. And on the basis of that, we have to recognize what the things in our lives are. Like when I parent, I'm not just parenting this biological critter that is my kid. I'm parenting an immortal being that is created in God's image. That's what I'm doing. And I'm doing it poorly, but because my responsibility is not on the basis of how well I'm doing, but on the basis that the relationship exists, I just keep doing the best I can, recognizing there are things I can and cannot do on the basis of what my child is. As I understand more what my child is, that dictates for me what I'm doing. I don't do whatever I want. She's not a means to an end. I just do what I have to do because she is what she is. And there are certain things that I do to demonstrate the sacredness of my child, to enforce upon myself the moral actions I have to take because of the identity that she possesses from God, not from me. Now, when you recognize that, as we go through the book of Malachi, there are at least four major attitudes that, that get people—oops. There are at least four major attitudes that get people into the red triangle. Okay? And the first is arrogance. And you see that in the first verses where God has judged Edom, which is a, a, um, a country kind of the southeast of Israel, and somebody came and destroyed it. And they're like, we're just going to rebuild it. We're tough men. We're going to rebuild this thing. And when things get destroyed, they have to be rebuilt. But there is a way to rebuild in spite of God, and there is a way to rebuild with God. And these guys were saying, forget God, we'll rebuild this. And he's saying, that is not the attitude I'm looking for. The attitude he was looking for is, was humility, that this would humble them. And they would say, we were wrong. God, how, now God, how do we rebuild this? Trusting you. That's a really easy one. The second one, the, 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 Malachi doesn't spend much time on that one. That's why I'm not going to spend much time on it here. The second is dismissiveness or irreverence. Most of the book of Malachi is directed towards the priests. What, what, you know, today would be pastors or something, people who are the spiritual leaders of his people. And the main thing that apparently that they were doing was they were letting at least some people offer anything they wanted to God. So they had to make a sacrifice of a lamb or something for a festival, and it was okay if they brought a lion one or a blind one or a 
dying one or whatever. That was, that was okay. They probably didn't accept that from everybody, but for some people they did, because it says later they showed partiality, right? And God comes to me, he says, no, 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 Because here's the thing you've got to realize about God. God doesn't just demand a lot, but what he, he demands what's good. That is, he demands something that's respectful. That is, think about it this way. He doesn't say, you have a flock of 500 whatever. So, so let's go to the historical accounts. A flock of 500 sheep. He doesn't say, you've got 500 sheep? I want 340 of them. Now he could do that. He could do that. He could say, I want 340 of them. Because I'm God and I want 340 of them. That's not what he does. He says, I want one when you sin or to celebrate all that I've given you. And when you do it, I just want it to be a good one. That's all. I just don't want it to be dying. So if you look in, if you look in the Old Testament, there's a place where um, a family receives a child from God, right? Like they have a son, and they have this child, and he says, when you have a child, I want you to sacrifice this goat or lamb. And it, but it says, but if you can't afford it, he doesn't say get a sick one, right? So if you can't afford it, just get two doves, which are like a penny, right? And then he says, and if you can't even afford two doves, just a little bit of grain, right? To offer back to God for receiving a child. You see, the point here isn't that God demands so much. God demands so little, actually. But he wants what we offer him to be good. Because that is the only offering you can make with reverence. You can offer a little in reverence. But you cannot offer something that is diseased in reverence. You can't offer garbage in reverence. And see, this is the demand. He says the issue here is not that you should demand more from the people. The issue here is that you're accepting garbage, which creates this idea that this God that we are worshiping and celebrating is the sort of God that accepts garbage. Now, you might think, well, I don't know what the pastor is going to do with this because it's about lambs and stuff. We don't Listen, just look, just look at our lives. Look at your life and look at my life as an offering toward God, because the New Testament spiritualizes how we live our lives towards God as our acceptable offering. What in and of your life belongs to God, and what do you offer to Him of your time, of your talents, of your moral actions, of your choices, of what you give yourself to, of how you do it? Because it's very easy to go through the religious obligations and be offering God even more than he asks for, but to be offering him essentially garbage, and be communicating to everybody around us that our God is the sort of God that we're so convinced he exists that we can give him anything and we know he'll be okay with it. It is a complete breakdown of the most basic attitude towards God, which isn't warm feelings, but a reverence to the level that the standard biblical term is fear. That make sense? He says this, right? Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants and spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. That's pretty serious, right? That doesn't make much sense, does it? Um, so if, like, if you're into chic eating in the, in the modern world, but not vegetarian, um, the word offal refers to all of the organs inside of something that you can eat, like kidneys, liver, heart, whatever, right? And so it's kind of like, oh, look at that. It's sweetie. If that bothers you, you're going to want to cover your eyes for the next two slides. I'm just going to tell you right now. Um, 
However, uh, and if you go into like other countries, it's, it's, it get, it's more than like just here, right? Like it includes brains, heads, all that kind of stuff. Okay, now, the thing about this is, is that um, that is not what the Bible is referring to when it says offal. In Leviticus 4, when it talks about the sacrifice and it talks about what to do with the inner parts of the sacrifice, it distinguishes between what it calls the inner parts, with one Hebrew word, and the offal with the other Hebrew word. That is, the inner parts, meaning the stuff suitable to eat, are the inner parts. So what's the offal? Well, the offal is that which is within, right? So we think, oh, that's what's within the body cavity, the heart, the liver. No, no. It's what's within that is what it refers to. So if you've ever been hunting, the fun part when you're successful is when you have to gut the deer, right? It's Father's Day. Come on. Right? And one of the things that you get taught, I was taught as a young lad about gutting a deer is, is that the one of the things you do not want to puncture is the ruminant stomachs of a deer. Right? So what God is saying is, because these priests will not show reverence for him by accepting any kind of sacrifice— and demonstrating that he's worthless and not worthy of reverence, he's going to get both his hands in the ruminant stomachs and embodied dung of the sacrifices, rub it together, and wipe it down the faces of these guys, and then send them out of the camp to be burned, which is what you did with the offal. But the emphasis here isn't in the them getting burned up, or even really them leaving the camp. It's on the spreading it on their faces— that I'm going to get the stuff, and I'm going to wipe it, and I'm going to rub it into your nostrils, and I'm going to slip it into your mouth. Like, it's going to be nasty. And you see, the point of that is, he says this, but you have turned from your way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble, right? Because of what they're communicating about God, by what they do, right? You have violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord Almighty, so I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people. You see what he's saying? He's saying, because you seek to humiliate me and to treat me without any reverence at all or any honor or respect, he said, I'm going to do something that's going to terrifyingly disrespect, dishonor, and humiliate you. That's what he's saying. He's very serious about it. The third is Infidelity. Because to God, respect has to do with fidelity, faithfulness, um, keeping our promises, right? Because God is a promise keeper. That's what he does. He, he always keeps his promises. That's one of the greatest things about him, and that is fundamentally at the heart of salvation. Because remember, salvation in its most general sense works like this. God makes a promise. We choose whether or not to believe it. If we believe it, he credits it as us to righteousness, and he brings us to himself. If we choose to reject his promise, we reject him and we go our own way. Ultimately, that's what the whole invitation of salvation comes down to in its most general sense. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Therefore, most fu the most fundamental thing to salvation is promising and keeping promises. And so when you get into chapter 2, um, there is a focus on rebuking in marriage, and it focuses on two, the two great breakings of the, the marriage covenant. One is interreligious marriage. And the other is divorce. Um, all, through the, all through the Bible, from beginning to end, it claims that nobody who believes in and follows God and trusts his promises can marry someone who doesn't. Period. That does not mean that a Baptist can't marry a Presbyterian. 
Okay, that's not, that's not what interreligious marriage means. That's what it means on a government form. But that's not what it means. What it means is, is that a person who loves, serves, and follows Jesus cannot marry somebody who doesn't. Period. Full stop. It, it, there's no comma unless you love them or unless you think they'll make a good father or unless that they're going to make a lot of figures or whatever. It just flatly says you cannot marry someone who doesn't love, serve, and follow Jesus, even if they say they do to the pastor at your premarital counseling. Um, and that, that and, and here's why. Because that confuses the covenant. Are you under the covenant, aren't you? You, you, you're making a covenant that confuses the covenant. You can't do that. First Corinthians 7, it talks about a woman who's unmarried and, and the options she has in marrying, and, and, and Paul basically says she can do what she wants. The only stipulation he puts on it is, except he must belong to the Lord. It's the only stipulation. The second is divorce, which he comes down on pretty hard. It says this, you do another thing that is, uh, at, that is in addition to interreligious marriage. There's another thing you do that's really, really, really bad. He says, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hand. So you're like, oh God, where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you helping? Blah, blah, blah. Right? I'm worshiping. I'm making offerings. I'm doing things. Why aren't you doing what I want you to? And he says, and this is his answer. He says, you ask why, it's because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth because you've broken faith with her, though she's your partner, the wife of your marriage. What's the last word? Covenant. You see, what he's saying, what he's saying is, he's saying, you know, when you, you know when you went to the church and you did the vows and stuff up here? He said everybody in the audience was supposed to be a witness to that. Their job was to do what? To hold your marriage vows sacred. Back to the triangle. When you go to a wedding, what are you there for? You are not there just to celebrate. You are going there because it is your job as a witness to hold sacred the vows being made. That's your job. You're a witness, right? That's why the pastor says, before God and these witnesses, right? Because if you get into a fight, what's everybody in your life supposed to do? Work it out. We gotta work it out. How can we work it out? Can I help? Can I watch your kids so you can go work it out? Can we pay for, can we help you pay for counseling so you can work it out? Can we just, can you work it out? Can we, talk to me. Let's, let's work it out. Can I punch you so you can work it out? Right? We're, that's why you invite people to your wedding, so that there'll be this pile of people who will not let you go the wrong way. That's the whole that's point, part of being a church. The whole point of being in a small group. So, right? But God goes another step here because in this passage, he intentionally connects the covenant of salvation and the covenant of marriage inextricably. He says, at the beginning of this section where he talks about the, the two marriage issues, he says, have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we, that is we, the whole people of Israel, why do we profane, you see the respect and sacredness word? Profane is the opposite of hold sacred, right? Why do we profane it instead of hold it sacred? The covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another. Now, that's an interesting line because when he says the covenant, what's he referring to? Is he talking about marriage? It's not. He's talking about the covenant with all the people of God, right? He's talking about the, the covenant of salvation. But then he says, then why do we break faith with— Now, if it was the covenant, he should say, why do we break faith with God? Because the covenant is with us and God, right? But he doesn't say that. He says with one another. You see what he's saying? He's connecting the covenant 
and us being faithful to that, he says, if we were faithful to this, why would we profane it by breaking faith with one another in our covenants? The covenant he's clearly referring to, which he does in the next verses, is marriage. That is, what he's saying is, the covenant of marriage and the covenant of salvation are inextricably linked to each other. They point to each other, they reference each other, and in one sense, they even create each other. Because when you look at this, the the one verse that everybody knows from Malachi is the verse where it says, God says, I hate divorce, which is actually, there are other ways to translate that. They're worse, though, so this is the nicest way to translate it. But it says this, has not the Lord made them one, meaning the two people who get married, in flesh and spirit, they're his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your earth. You see what he's saying? He's saying, watch your attitude. You think you're languishing? You think they're making your life miserable? You think it's not working out? You think you're having difficulty? Well, watch yourself. Watch your attitude so that you don't break faith with the wife or the husband of your youth. Now, in that passage, God argues both the identity of marriage and the divine purpose of marriage. That is, go back to the triangle, right? He's clarifying the identity, because if we get that straight, the morality will be straight and the sacredness will be straight. And he says this, this is what marriage is. A man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And then he says, has not, what? The Lord made them one. Remember Jesus saying something like that? He says, that whom God has joined, let man, including the man and woman in the marriage, not separate, right? Has made them one in flesh, the two shall become one flesh, and spirit. They are their own. They are his. As a married couple, joined in flesh and spirit, they belong to him. And why one? So why did, because God did it. You can't get out of it. It belongs to him. He's done it in flesh and in spirit. Why did he do it? This is very clear, because he was seeking godly offspring. There's two things in that, right? One is, babies are his idea. Okay? The church should grow through conversion. Absolutely. Right? God wants his name known among all nations. But reproduction is God's idea. It's not designed to simply be an an inconvenience to us and a way for us to pay for our own social security benefits because we've overspent in our lifetimes. Okay? That's not the purpose of children. The purpose of children is because God wants another generation of covenant keepers. That's the purpose of children. It has nothing to do with us. Except for he has created us in bonded marriages together so that we might produce something he wants, which is another generation of offspring who are, as it says here, godly. In the context of this, that is, what does godly mean? It means reverential towards God in his salvation covenant and are themselves covenant keepers in all the covenants he puts forward, which are mainly two, salvation and marriage, so that they might create another generation of offspring who are little covenant keepers. That is the perfect—listen, it does not matter one fig what you and I are doing with marriage. <laughs> we think we're doing stuff with it. We're on the red triangle like, oh, marriage is for me to be happy, and the, it's got certain utilities of companionship and pleasure and blah, 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 and I'll do with it what I want, and I'll stand it if I want to. Listen, 
You think you're doing that stuff. You may or may not be in the red triangle. It does not matter. Here's what's going on with marriage. Marriage is a fundamentally unbreakable spiritual covenant that you make because God owns it, has joined you together in flesh and spirit because he wants godly offspring. That is what we are there to create, do, be, and live out. That's our purpose, and that's why we do it. And it's not some side thing we do if our career isn't working out well enough or if we already got our MD, but now we can have children and raise them because, well, I've shown that I'm a strong enough woman that I could do anything, so now culture can finally release me to raise children. It's the reason why—as I bet as, as long as I'm making you mad, I might as well push it a little further, right? It's one of the reasons why in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the most embarrassing verse in the Bible, it can actually say, and women will be saved through childbearing, and all of us blow our tops. It's partly because—well, that's a little out of step with our culture. It's partly because we don't have any idea what childbearing is. <laughs> any idea what it is, especially probably the men. Having children. What does God want? God does, doesn't care about your bank account. He doesn't care about your job. He doesn't care about your house. Not in the sense he cares about this. There are two covenants, salvation and this one. He is creating another generation of covenant keepers. He wants godly offspring. He desires that. That's why there's a marriage. That's why we can reproduce. That's what he's doing. I, listen, I'll tell you straight up. I didn't want children. I didn't want children. What are you children for? I have the government. I'm being serious. We knew this wonderful couple from Norway when I was in seminary. She's like, it's really weird living in America because it's almost like you have to trust God because the government doesn't do everything for you. And I'm like, really? It's because it kind of feels like you don't here too, you know? I, do you know how much disposable income I could be spending on myself? How many fishing trips I could have gone on? How many elk I could have run through? I mean, do you have any idea what I could have done instead of having four children? Are you kidding me? And you'd be like, well, don't you love your kids? Yeah, but not till they got here. When they were ideas, they were only negatives. I mean, the youngest one, I still don't even like her. I'm just kidding. That's not true. That's not true. She's, she's great. We cannot accept that because we cannot—we don't know what our, what our role is. We don't know what our, our goals are. We don't know what we're for. We don't know what we're doing. And so we think marriage is this thing that we use <laughs> and that we can do with it what we want and that, um, you know, whatever happens with a court ruling on gay marriage, that is not one iota of significance as related to whether or not people in the church will dare to stay married. Just doesn't matter. It, just, it doesn't really matter. I remember when I heard this from Christopher Hitchens, the atheist, who's talking about George Orwell. He said, human beings in this generation have no idea what they're capable of. You think you can't stand it. You think you've got to get out. You think they'll never change. You think it's so bad. You know what? With all respect, you and I live in a pampered culture we have no idea what we're capable of. I was listening to a book recently on the Six-Day War. They were talking about in the first tank offensive, which was enormously difficult and bloody, um, some of the heroic things that were done. And they said to the T afterwards, they'd interview these soldiers. And all of them who, did, who got these medals of honor said, um, if you would have asked me if I was capable of that, I would have told you no. There's like, just no, there's no way I could do what I— and then they did it. 
because in battle, when their friend was there, they just, they just did it. They're, you, just like, like when I play basketball now, because I'm about to turn 37, there's stuff that 10 or 12 years ago I, would, I could do, and now I, my mind conceives it, and I see the lane of the basket, and I go, and my knees go, we're not going to do that. If you exercise five days a week, maybe, but we're just not, we're not up for that. And here's the thing, here's what people don't understand. They realize that their body says that, they don't realize their mind does that too. Your brain does that too. Your brain acclimates to what you do, and then it tells you that's what you can do. It's kind of like the Mint app on your phone. It like sets your budget on the basis of what you spend, right? Which in one sense, it tells you what reality is. On another sense, it's totally idiotic. No, you need to tell yourself what you're going to spend, then you need to do it, and then hopefully they'll tell you what you did. You and I have no idea what we're capable of redemptively in marriage. And the reason that we don't—the reason we don't have the moral courage to do it is because we don't fear God, because we don't understand what God is doing in and with marriage, and because we're atheists and we're afraid we're going to die and lose our only opportunity to be happy rather than serve God in convictional duty, recognizing He is going to give us the beauty and joy we seek forever. If you have to get out of a marriage, other than that you're going to get beat to death, basically, you're like, I just have to. Here's the real reason for that. Okay, I don't mean to be mean. Here's the real reason for that. I'm going to waste my one life being unhappy. And then I won't have another life to be happy in. And I'll waste my youth, or I'll waste my whatever, and then I won't have it, and I'll lose it, and I'll have wasted myself with this idiotic guy, or this mean woman, and blah, blah, blah. And it's because, here's it, you don't believe in heaven. Not enough that you're willing to bet now on it. You're not a martyr, in the best sense of the word. Listen, I, my, my first few years of marriage with Alexi, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure f- the fear of God, the reverence of the Lord has saved our marriage from her side five or six times. But I, I mean, I can tell you time, I mean, for me, I mean, there was a point where we just hated each other like all over God's green earth. And the only thing that kept me there was my fear of the living Christ. And that I had one option and I was going to have to figure out how to, how to love this witch of a woman. Listen, that's how I felt. See, that's my perspective. I was abraded. That was my perspective. I saw her as this woman who was destroying my life. I trusted her with everything. I trusted her with my happiness. I gave myself to her. I'm going to live. And this is what she does with it. She nags me, right? So I felt I was abraded badly. I was in seminary studying theology. But it was this sense of the fear of God that like, listen, you can't divorce her. She's God's daughter. She's the wife of your youth. You better sort it out. Maybe if you start being nice to her, she'll start being nice to you or something. And if she's not, you better create emotional boundaries so that she can't affect you like she does. And maybe she'll grow up in 10 years, and we'll just have to see. And it's amazing when you have one option what you're capable of. Fidelity is fundamentally an issue of respect and honor, and you can't have faith without respect and honor. Now listen, I need to say a caveat here, and I know we've been at this a while. Um, There are places in the Bible that talk about divorce as permissible in certain very limited circumstances, and God refers to himself, if you've been here the last few weeks, God refers to himself in certain places in the Bible as divorced. And God was a decently good husband. Okay? So 
Um, and I don't care what people say about mutual divorces, there hardly aren't any. They're all unilateral. Um, sometimes people put a nice face on it or they tell the kids that. There are, that's not true. Um, there is the person who initiates it and the person who accepts it. Um, and there are a couple things. Infidelity in the Bible, um, Jesus says that, that, that divorce is permissible, but not necessary. It's your choice in that case. And there's an argument that can be made for abandonment in 1 Corinthians 7. There's some arguments about a few other things, but it's very— and God refers to himself as divorced. So the fact that you may be divorced does not in and of itself mean that you're not following Jesus or something. And even if you have, here's the thing that God says to everybody, no matter what they've done. Return to me, and I'll return to you. That's what he says. In all these cases, return to me, and I'll return to you, and we'll sort this out. And so I can't tell you the way forward if you're wondering what the way forward is, but that's why we have elders and pastors and counseling. And So if you're like, I don't know what to do with my mess, well, come in, we'll talk about your mess, and we'll try to figure out a way to sort it out the best of the way the Bible can direct us, and Jesus would walk with you, okay? The fourth is futility. There's this place that things get to where you're just kind of like, you know, where's God? It doesn't even matter. What does it even matter that we serve God? God's like, listen, you've weirded me by your words, and they say, well, and they say, how we wor- have we worried you? He says, um, you, sa- you say, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Where is the God of justice? Or below that, it says, what did we gain by carrying out the requirements of God and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? By going about like mourners, what they mean is worship. What do we gain by worshiping God and doing what he said? Nothing. Have you, ever, have you ever had that conversation with somebody where they say something enormously offensive and they're like, what? They say this stuff about God and God's like, um, wh- what do you think that's about? You think I don't hear that? Right? There's a sense of futility and that futility produces a lack of faith which produces an irreverence. But for each one of these things, um, God has and is always calling us out of it. The whole point of him confronting it is because he wants to call us out of it because he wants to do something redemptive with us, right? When he talks, talks about the Edomites and they're like, well, we're just going to rebuild it, right? He says, no, look, if you'll just believe, if you'll have some humility rather than arrogance, you'll see that God is the God everywhere. And the God who can punish you no matter where you go is the God who can save you no matter where you go or where you've been. The God who is everywhere as judge is the God who is everywhere as savior because he's everywhere as king. And the thing that should be the worst possible news to you could be the best possible news. If instead of reacting with arrogance, you re- reacted with humility. The second is reverence, right? He says to these people, he says, so why was he, so why was he going to rub the offal on their face and drag? He said, here's why, because the covenant I made with Levi, right? Levi is the line of priests. The people are supposed to lead people toward God. He said, the reason why I'm going to do this to you is because I want my covenant— see that word again? My covenant with Levi to continue. You see, God has made a covenant of leadership, spiritual leadership, and spiritual following, right? He's created a church, an institution of people who walk together, and he's created like elders and pastors, right? And he says to people, I mean, look, I'll kill you if I have to. Why? Why would he talk? Why does it say in James, listen, don't be a, don't be a teacher unless you're serious about it because teachers are going to be judged more strictly by God. It's don't do it lightly. Why does it say that? Because God wants his covenant with Levi to continue. He wants people to be led well. He wants them to be called to be reverent toward him. He wants that the priest or the pastor, whoever leads to stand in there and say, look, we got to trust God. God is good. Quit 
Quit your accusations and your I'll do what I want and your red triangulating. We gotta trust God. He's good. Like we're gonna have to put on our big boy pants and our big woman high heels, and sorry for the mental image, and we're gonna need to follow Jesus. Right? And then the third is fidelity. Like the fact that God wants godly offspring is not just the great blessing he desires, it's the great blessing we should desire. If we commit ourselves to this, what, what have we to do but pass on life beautifully? Buy nicer cars? Eat lower calorie, lower taste dinners? Go on more vacations to see leaves change color? I mean, honestly, what, what do we really have to do besides pass on life well to create a new generation of little covenant keepers and be little covenant keepers ourselves? That's all God requires of us. And fourth is justice and generosity. You see what happens when we get that sense of like futility, that like, what, is it, what does it matter? Where is he? What's he even doing? What? You know what happens? We get dulled in our sense of, of, of fulfilling justice and being generous. Why? Because what's going to happen when you step forward and demand justice be done in something for somebody else? You're going to get punched in the face is what's going to happen. When you say, this is wrong, we need to stop it. We need to do something that's right. What's, what's going to happen is you're advocating for less powerful people against the interests of more powerful people. What do you think is going to happen to you? You're going to get slandered in the press. You're going to get socially and publicly destroyed. You're going to get—you're going to fight a war. You fight for real justice, you're going to war. And you better believe in an afterlife or something because it's not going to be pretty. You wonder why there's not more justice in the world? It's not because our policies aren't right because we haven't elected enough economists. The reason is we're all cowards and we won't fight for it. And generosity. What happens when you think everything's futile? You're going to be generous? towards the feudal ends of God's apparently idiotic spiritualities? You're not going to give money to help other people who are never going to change? All the evolutionary psychologists will tell you that these people aren't going to change. They're pre-programmed genetically. The reason the poor are poor is because they're less. I mean, you should rat hole your money? You go to Tahiti. Right? At some point, you got to be like, you know what? I'm going down with the Jesus ship, even if it's wrong. Like, I'm, I, am, I am doing this. And in both cases, he says, listen, therefore, there should be justice and there needs to be generosity coming out of us. And so there's one place where they go, they go, God, why aren't you judging everybody? And he's like, listen, when I judge everybody, it's going to come one, it's not going to be like, oh, you should be better. And then I'll come back later like a child-centered parent and be like, well, I don't like that choice. Let me give you two more. He's like, when I come for judgment, it's not going to be like that. I am going to come and I am going to burn everything to the ground and I'm going to be like a guy with a brush who gets in the boat after a squid snapper trip and just brushes everything off and rinses it all away. And if you think it's your neighbor who's going down and not you, you are delusional. That's what he says. He says, the day of fire is going to come, and I'm going to judge everybody. See, he, see what he's saying? You priests use partiality. You'll take a crappy sacrifice from this guy in a good, because you distinguish between people. He's like, I don't. And so you think you're just, and you're good, and your neighbor's bad. And he's like, listen, when I come, I'm going to come. And so, so he says, listen, therefore, 
He says right after it's going to be like that, he says, I, the Lord, do not change so that you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. He's like, why don't I do what you tell me to? You're like, God, come and judge the wicked, and you want me to change my plans, he's saying. I don't change my plans. I don't change. And here's why I don't change. So you don't die. That's why I don't change. And then he says, so return to me, and I'll return to you. You see, the purpose of his delayed judgment and therefore his delayed justice is the redemption of you and I because as long as he delays it, he can offer grace and salvation and forgiveness, right? Sorry, wrong button. And then when it comes to giving, he says, listen, you want to be stingy because you think it's all futile, but if you'll be generous in spirit, time, wealth, whatever, and here it actually talks about wealth, giving. But if you'll be generous instead of stingy, if you'll believe in God and be reverent towards him instead of believe in the futility of all things and spend everything on yourself, he says, you wait. He said, because here's the thing. Do you think that when we feel like things are futile, we're going to be generous? We're not going to be generous. We're going to be generous towards ourselves because all there is is us. We're going to be generous towards us. It's only when we believe we're not that big a deal, that there's eternity beginning lost and changed and lived in, that we can be really fully generous with others. And you see, that's when God is generous with us. He's not going to bless you with enormous generosity so, so that you can be confirmed in your stinginess. That's just not how he works, right? He's going to be generous with us when we are generous. And then we're going to take what he gives us, and we're going to be generous again. And he's going to give us more, and we're going to be generous again. And we're going to keep being generous. And he's going to be generous with us, and we're going to be generous. Why? Because that's what a relationship of reverence, when you trust a God who is generous of character, that's how that relationship goes. Futility will always cut off generosity. A sense of futility will always cut off generosity. But a trust in God's reality will give you the courage to fight for justice and be generous. God respects those who respect him and he honors those who honor him. Faith always has to include that. And the good news, one of, part of the good news is that he rewards that. I mean, all through the Bible, all the promises are these unblushing promises of reward. And some people go, oh yeah, well he's just trying to buy our allegiance. That's not very noble, is it? No. It is perfectly noble to reward people for doing what is intrinsically good. There's nothing wrong with that. For him to reward what is truly good is not bribery at all. We should be willing to do it and desirous to do it out of honor and respect for God. He's generous and loves to reward it. But that's not even the best thing about it. I don't think we think about this very much, but God deserves what he demands. When he demands the level of respect of a being of absolute perfection and awe, he demands that because he is that. I mean, you, let that settle in on you that you're like, oh man, he's pretty demanding. Yeah, because he's that awesome. Like it's, the two are in relationship to each other. God is that immense. He's that good. He's that loving. He's that kind. He's that right. He's that clear. He's that expansive. He's that everything. He's that much of that thing that the right thing for him to do is say, hey, look, you can't treat me like that. And listen, he's never going to grovel in psychological manipulation because you want to have a pity party at him. You know, you could be like, where is God? And he should be doing this, and I'm angry, and blah, blah. Listen, God is not going to extinguish his divine dignity to meet the perceived needs of our bad attitudes as we abrade our faith into nothing. That's never going to happen. He doesn't do that anywhere in the Bible. And yet, 
he has the perfectly right kind of divine dignity, doesn't he? Because even though he will not compromise his divine dignity and put aside his sacredness, yet he's still the God of the father of the prodigal son that will run down the road in a humiliating fashion. That is, belittling his dignity to bring in the repentant one. He's the God who will put aside his divine majesty and dignity to become the man Jesus Christ, to be treated with maximal dishonor, maximal irreverence, maximal injustice on the cross. That which God absolutely demands from humanity, his own divine dignity, is so divine in its dignity that at the morally perfect time he sets it all aside to redeem us. That one's going to take a while to sort out. But that is the best news of all this. That that which God demands, he backs up. And if we could see into that, instead of thinking we see through it, it'd change our lives. Let's pray. Father, um, I pray that you would, you'd help us, you'd, you'd teach us. I pray that you'd take everything that I said that was faithful to the words that you would speak, and I pray that you'd impress it with great conviction and encouragement onto our hearts. I pray that anything that I said that was not in keeping with what you would speak and not faithful to a right interpretation of your word, that you'd help people forget and leave aside and see for what it is. I pray that the wounds that we should receive from your word that are redemptive to draw us into something better that we would receive and that you'd heal us and draw us to yourself. And we pray for you to teach us what it means to truly hold you in reverence, to respect you as you deserve, to fear and reverence you, for that to be the heart of where we are and for that to deliver us from all the cowardice creating attitudes that will abrade our faith into nothing when we feel like we're waiting or languishing whether it's in fatherhood or a bad job or a sucky marriage or something else. Help us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Pour out your spirit on us. Amen.